Hello and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Eversman, and this is, well, it's a very special issue and a special series celebrating the release of Deep Overstock 18, Old Favorites. Now, if you don't know, Deep Overstock is based on Powell's City of Books, which is the largest bookstore in the world, so we say. Your editors first met as booksellers in the lovely city of Portland, Oregon, where we worked at Powell's Books. Excuse the dog sneezing in the background. We created Deep Overstock to get our bookshelving friends to finally publish their own words, or as put brilliantly by Mickey, to help our friends and co-workers finally shelve their own books. So Powell City of Books is a city block long and has more than five floors, more than a million physical books in store, and the only elevator that opens from three doors, the side of the Mississippi. It is a huge store. Booksellers literally give out maps so visitors don't get lost. The rooms in Powell's are separated into nine different colors. Pearl, rose, coffee, red, purple, blue, gold, orange, and green which then correspond to the Deep Overstock journal issues, and so to this series of issue release episodes. We are starting off tonight in the Pearl Room, revisiting Deep Overstock's old favorites from Powell's book's topmost floor, issue one, Space Exploration, and issue 10, Origin of Life. Tonight, we will hear work by BLB, Amalia E. Gananadisikan, Daniel J. Nicholas, Carolyn Adams, Anna Laura Falvey, Olive Wexler, Clarissa Grunwald, Kate Falvey, and John Delaney. Now that we're in the Pearl Room, we'll start off in the space exploration section. First, we have On an Otherwise Unremarkable Note by BLB. The symphony of bugs buzzing around our bright bodies, the spray acrid as gasoline over our arms, legs, torsos, faces scrunched like zipper spokes. The wind hesitating before reaching to touch the leaves, our hair sticky with sweat being lifted briefly before settling again. A reflection. Telescope takes time to temperature adjust. Nothing to do but wait. Look up, look around, count seconds or blades of grass. It's all the same thing. Think, as always, of Galileo, the slim aesthetic of a three-legged refractor, retractable like spyglass, the sacrifices we make for clarity, Newton's cylindrical tube, crosshairs the same as a shotgun, though no risk for crossing deer, something about it feels almost the same, maybe just the empty field, the bright open sky, the bleeding heat. Hunting reminds me of nothing so much as sweat, trailing neck, hair clinging to slick skin, hands heavy, swelling with heat, though I can't remember any more if I've really been. Memory or truth do not always overlap. Like now, but not. The blind in the trees, watching dawn crawl its way across the sky, the telescope on the ground, watching sunset blink its heavy eyes to sleep. The telescope takes exactly as much time to adjust as it takes to sink into the right trail of thought. Tonight the sky is soft as silk, 
so few clouds to disrupt the sighting, it seems almost as if a spindle of fabric were rolled out across the horizon, stars like jewels or pinholes in the whole sky opening like the epitome of possibility. There is something to be said about lenses adding ease to the gift of sight, but I am not the one to say it. I'll say instead, everything reminds me of something else, and sliding the lens into place on the telescope feels exactly like sliding the glass sample under a microscope. The magnification of stars and cells could not be less alike, but the bloom of wonder is just the same. Crickets are singing their sweet song, and when I remember, it is simply the brushing of legs. Somehow, it grows sweeter. There is no end to the joy of wonder. The dial twists, untwists. The sky grows fainter, then sharper, closer, then farther. Though nothing aside from sight is changing. Stars flicker like camera spots, shining, then blurring, then splitting apart. Focus is key. And with something so small as a star, the key is elusive. The first star I caught in my sight was Vega, the falling vulture, the year star, judge of heaven, messenger of life. The Pleiades, predecessor, once marked the start of a new year. The sign that earth was once more ready to bear life, its fall below the horizon unlocking the beginning of autumn. All this, and too, named the most important star in the sky, save the sun. Maybe that's why I call it my own, the resonance of being second best. Before Polaris was Vega, North Star, Celestial Navigator, Axis Aligned, Ever Shining. In a future so distant it becomes impossible to imagine, Vega will reclaim its former position. Pole Star, Guiding Principle, Preeminent, Paramount. Vega was traditionally named after a loose transliteration, Falling, Landing. At one time, it was related to winter savory, a bitter plant that flowers in summer, nearly evergreen, less used than summer savory. At the same time, it was related to olivine, a mineral so easily weathered it's used to sequester carbon dioxide, found in meteorites on our moon, Mars, infant stars, and a single asteroid discovered the year I was born. Its spectral signature has been seen in dust disks around young stars, the tails of comets, and the planetesimal belt around a single star, the second brightest in its constellation, named Painter's Easel, larger and more luminous than the sun. The Lockheed Vega was named for my star, and 5B was the plane Earhart took as the first woman to fly solo on a non-stop transatlantic flight, five years before she disappeared. The Vega rocket began development the year I was born, and the first launch was set the day before Valentine's, the year I turned 14. Claiming something as your own is as easy as seeing it and naming it yours. The way you say shotgun when with a group of friends and you want, for a moment, to feel special. The way you see Vega both in the sky above you, with your own two eyes, a burning light so far you can't understand 
and in the glass below you, so close your eyelashes brush the lens, that feeling like you must be the first person in the whole known universe to feel this way, to feel this tug on your heart, reminding you of how big everything is, and how minuscule you are, and how beautiful that realization is. And though you know countless others have felt this way, have put it to words better than you, and long, long before you, somehow it feels right to see this star, and name it mine, because you want, for a moment, to feel special. Next, we have On Mining Station Gamma 12 by Amalia E. Gunanadizikan. Outside, the sun has set. The atmosphere is freezing to the surface for the night, while mining rovers trundle home through frosted regolith. Inside, the air ducts hum. Recycled water flows through hydroponic gardens under lights. A systems check confirms that all is well inside the airlock. Elsewhere, on planet Earth, it's said they walk on grass, enjoying sunshine as their right. She sighs and wonders what it would be like to go outside. Next, we have The First Astronauts by Daniel J. Nicholas. The First Astronauts by Daniel J. Nicholas. Who are these determined apes who endure the cries of cracked bones and vertigo which precede the treetops? Treetops where these apes reach and grasp and check their fingertips to see if maybe they'd grazed the halo. They don't yet realize, yet still they reach unapologetically up toward the twinkle, which precedes the dawn. Now, here's future astrophysicists of America, or Children Staring into a Void, by Anna Laura Falvey. Future astrophysicists of America, or Children Staring into a Void. When I was young, I stood on the hole in the museum floor. The black seemed unspecial, the dark inconspicuously final. I stood and I watched the museum swallow itself. A world inverted, knotted, suffocated, and gone. I watch a little girl over the mouth of false infinite, stepping lightly, drawn to it, I think, as I was and am. She stepped onto it, stood for a moment, and jumped. A joyous and angry jump, shattering and powerful. All ears rang, and the stars rattled and then quieted. A green-shirt boy steps, steps off, steps again, falls, and runs. A boy and girl, slightly older, apprehensive, unimpressed. A dinosaur-shirt boy, dressed for the occasion, stood and stared and jumped, knees high, power drunk. A yellow-dressed girl stood stock still and then took her doll, the softness of which was evident, and placed it in front of her. She placed her hand on its head, blessing, and pressed down, down, until the body was as flat as it could be. 
She did not push it through to the other side. A final total of hard jumps. Nine. A boy with a dragon backpack backed definitely away and walked carefully around. A father, two sons, and a daughter wrapped together, balanced on one foot to fit. A tranced, straight-backed, crane-necked, silent, tank-topped, fuzzy-sandaled girl stood for two tall minutes. A buckled sandal girl tipped her doll upside down as if dipping her head systematically into a glass of milk. A girl in a white ballerina's skirt inches forward until she jumps off. A girl in a peasant blouse stood anchored, stepped off, reconsidered, and left. A sister hoisted a brother into the air, and he was weightless, tethered, looking down. A boy in a shark shirt, thumb in mouth, sat next to me, tapped on my shoulder, and said, Look up. All right, star voyagers, now that we've crash-landed, let's see if there's life on this planet. Come with me even deeper into the Pearl Room, now for Issue 10, Origin of Life. First, we have The Eaves by Olive Wexler. If you ever leave me, I'm coming with you. Pass me the fruit. We can shed our old skin. I won't mind the bitter bite, the second slice. We wasted years not knowing, but I've always been curved at your side. You build the fire. I'll suck the marrow from the bones. We'll be possessed with ourselves. No exorcism needed. Don't water the garden. Just take a bucket to catch the rain. And maybe an apple for the road. Now here's Origin Story by B.L.B. Origin Story after Karen Gottschall. Lake Superior whispered me into existence, from dream to bodily dream. My body was never meant to be so far from the water, but so it goes. Summer of 1997, a year early and a little extra change, my mother was round with life, my father ripe with the stench of possibility, a month or two out from crumbling beneath themselves. The rusted signs pointing home, did success live already in the confines of meth trailers? I could ask, but what would be the point? I like to think this was before the world went bad though the world went bad long before any living memory. The sorrow of it all, the wasted potential, I imagine my mother's eyes glazing past the water stretching toward the skyline. Stuck instead to the hot sand beneath her feet, she never learned to swim, and we were all weak swimmers as a result. For her, it was never a matter of fear. Somehow, the water never called to her. The water doesn't speak to me, but I hear it all the same. The changing of life from possibility to responsibility happened some feet away from Lake Superior. It is a slow change, one I denied for as long as I could. I kept a drowning gown in the back of my closet. It did not go untouched, but it did go unused. Not the first, but 
one of many unforgivable mistakes. The summer spent drinking and smoking and gambling and hiding. That summer spent digging my blunt nails against rock formation. That summer spent rushing through the forest to my favorite scent. We've jumped so far ahead. What of the becoming? There's only so many ways one can say for my body to be given one had to be taken. A misunderstanding of the way the world works, and yet one I must have been born with. My mother round with life, my father alone in a cell. The distance that shaped me, often a gift, but not then. There was no sorrow to be found in that moment, so it all crawled into me, the smallest, most needful container. Origin is an entry. What becomes of the exit? It must be named a wound. Now, Conversations in a Graveyard by Daniel J. Nicholas. Elephants and eyelash mites, streams of life, of heritage both mighty and minute. Existence spies through milky eyes and strife, cascades in raging sound, genetic root. The song, the strife, the milky streams all end, and yet that end comes as a mystery. The wintry absence of breath. You are the dark against which we defend. Without victory through our blind alchemy, we'll rest in the garden you keep nigh death. We practice the constructs of tradition, etched granite stone that lets us remember and hides the decay of your condition, pyres that lift the soul on pulsing embers, sweet platitudes that make our loss seem fair, the urn, the casket, veil of shoveled earth, there to see but not to look. Yet for our work, tradition leaves us bare, nothing more than a blind and fragile mirth, the hiding of a flower in a book. Yet it's the rocks who feed the lichen, the old trees when scorched who enrich the soil, which grows the grass of the fields we lie in, crafts the loam that lets the fern's frond uncoil. Are our bodies the rocks, the wood of flame, a nourishment, a balm, a new rhythm? Yes, you give us a new name. From one comes many, light through a prism, you death. The one who will not be sated are the dust from which we are created. Here is Born by Clarissa Grunwald. In the beginning, there was a river and an old man in a rowboat fishing the hazel water for coins and feathers and things. And there was you in the silt, all twisted up in soda rings with the hook burrowed deep in the red flesh of your foot. So he dragged you out, you sprawled on the stones where the first green things had begun to grow, and the old man put down his fishing pole and dragged his rotting boat underground. Now here's Cremation by John Delaney. We watched the pine box enter, the door close, and then the jets of the burners roared. Through hell he goes, I thought, and how we stood together silently, hearing the flames consume so 
violently. The stoic man that was our dad. It wouldn't take long to reduce his ninety years to ashes, everything he held right or wrong. I like to think we felt a modicum of warmth disperse across the cold, unloving universe. Now here's San Mandala with Ancestral Names by Kate Falvey. For Anna Laura Grace Elena The crushed rubies and sweet woodruff are Angelina, who died of her ninth bambino, making a bed of her memory for her two-year-old Laura, who would see her mother's ghost ever after on the landing, backlit by gaslight and need. The lapis lazuli and bluebells are Annie, Angelina's seventh-born, who died of a kitchen-table appendectomy, making a veil of her memory for Laura, her sister, to wear in perpetual mourning, and for her little niece, Elena, to feel ethereal whispers of tender, angelic regard. The citrine and thyme are Laura. Angelina's last child, Annie's sister, mother of Elaine, who lived in the glare of the sun with her shades for one hundred years, making a fist and a wink of her memory for her children to learn to pronounce themselves with effervescent fortitude and steely, vigorous joy. The opal and lavender are Elaine, Angelina's granddaughter, Laura's daughter, Annie's niece, who offers her ninety-five years as a testament to intelligent kindness and self-determination, making a cradle song of her memory to keep her children safe in the lilt of her boundless and deathless belief. The turquoise and sage are Ellen, Angelina's great granddaughter, Laura's granddaughter, Elaine's daughter, Anna Laura's mother, who is still here, her heart scarred and toughened with surgical scars and devotion, making a moon of her memory to light her daughter's way home. This concludes episode one, The Pearl Room, Space Exploration and Origin of Life. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Join us again next week for the Rose Room. And don't forget to submit for our next issue, Pearl Room. Hacking before November 30th. Visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines. 